Hi everyone, how's it going? Thanks very much for tuning in for another episode of Max Talks AI Podcast. I am super excited about this one and I'm sure you will enjoy it uh, as much as I did enjoy when I was recording it. So in this episode, I am joined by no other than Callum Chase. Callum is a distinguished author and speaker about artificial intelligence and its likely future impact on society. His books include a novel that's called Pandora's Brain and three non-fiction books on artificial intelligence, Surviving AI, The Economic Singularity, and The Two Singularities, which is the latest one, and I strongly urge you to check it out. Callum argues that superintelligence is closer than we think and that humanity is likely to be second smartest species on the planet relatively soon. Terrifying perspective, but uh, Callum makes some amazing educated arguments on the time frame of the possibility of superintelligence happening and especially its impact on economics that I find uh, deeply fascinating. And that's mostly covered in his book, The Economic Singularity. Callum studied philosophy at Oxford, where he initially developed his interest in artificial intelligence. And then after 30 years of career in business, he started sharing his insight uh, about AI with the world. Uh, and the world loved it, I think it's fair to say. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Callum Chase. Hello there and welcome to Max Talks AI. Today I am joined by Callum Chase. Hi, Callum. Hi, Max. Thank you very much for being on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. I was researching you in terms of your uh, professional career, and I found it to be quite kind of varied and multifaceted. Could you speak about how from strategist and marketer and really a businessman you moved to artificial intelligence thought leader and author and speaker? Mm, sure. Um, if my career is multifaceted, that's mainly because I'm old. Uh, and I was in business for 30 years. I started out after doing philosophy at university. I started out as a journalist, but quickly went into business and mm -hmm. spent most of that 30 years as a strategy consultant and then jumped over the fence to become a client and um, ran a series and helped to run a series of startups and turnarounds. And I stopped doing that at, right at the end of 2011. And that gave me the opportunity to pursue my hobby, which had always been an interest in artificial intelligence and that had got more intense in recent years. Uh, it had always been an interest because I read science fiction from a young mm -hmm. age, all the usual uh, all the usual suspects, Arthur Clarke, mm -hmm. um, Asimov, and my favorite, Greg Egan, um, but lots and lots of others as well. And I always thought that we would create machines which were smarter than us, but I always thought that it would not happen until millennia after I was dead. And then reading Kurt's file in Ray mm -hmm. Kurt's file, uh, his book, Are We Spiritual Machines in 1999, made me think that actually maybe it could happen in my lifetime or uh, soon after it. And Kurt's file at the time was Pollyanna-ish. He was relentlessly upbeat. He could see no possible harm in any of the amazing futures he forecasted. He's gotten more nuanced since then. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly could see some harm. So I started talking to everybody and I sent that book to loads of people and became pretty boring. And I remain pretty boring on the subject. <laughs> um, but then an amazing thing happened. 2012, there was a big bang in AI and AI uh, suddenly started working uh, in the sense that it makes a lot of money for the likes of Google and Amazon mm -hmm. and Facebook and so on. And so the rest of the world started talking about AI and, and my friends who had got really fed up with me banging on about it suddenly started reading about it in the press as well, which shocked them. Um, I wrote my first book about AI. Actually, I wrote the first chapter 
on AI in a book which was a essentially a business book published in in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I suspect I was probably the first person to write about the singularity in a mainstream business book. Though I wrote my first novel about it, um, published that in 2014, I think, uh, which is called Pandora's Brain. And then I wrote two non-fiction books, Surviving AI, which is about superintelligence and the economic singularity, which is about technological unemployment in uh, 2015 and 2016, respectively. And then I have just published a book which summarizes, well, it, it, it updates both of those and expands on them. And that's called Artificial Intelligence and the Two Singularity. Mm-hmm. And that's published by an academic publisher, um, C- CRC, which is an imprint of Taylor and Francis. That's just been published last week. Um, so I've written four books on AI, um, three nonfiction, one fiction. And I just think about it all the time. I'm fairly obsessive. Um, <laughs> and I tweet about it a lot and I write blog posts a lot. Uh, I have a blog at www.pandoras-brain.com mm-hmm. um, yeah and I give a lot talk, a lot of talks about it I go around the world giving a lot of talks about it so I'm, I'm living my hobby which is great fun that's amazing I've read um, out of the books that you've mentioned I've read uh, Surviving AI and The Economic Singularity and found them super fascinating and I'm yet to read the last one and I'm curious about the novel because I haven't really read a fiction book about artificial intelligence, nor have I read a fiction book for a while. Last one was Count of Monte Cristo, which is, I'm guessing, very different from Pandora's Brain. <laughs> um, if I could actually, Callum, go back to, you said you've kind of always been interested in, in AI. Is that stretching back to your philosophy degree? Were you thinking about kind of the singularity or whatever they used to call it back then? Yeah. Well, there's a lot in common between science fiction and philosophy. I have mm-hmm. no idea how I first conceived a desire to study philosophy, but I've, ever since I can remember, I've always known I wanted to study philosophy at Oxford. I have no idea where that idea came from. Possibly my father, I don't know. He died Mm -hmm. when I was nine, so I wasn't able to ask him. Um, And that was my strongest ambition for probably the first half of my life. And And I think it ties in well with science fiction, because what science fiction does is it says, if you change the world by tweaking the technology that's available, so, for instance, by making it possible for people to live forever or by making mm-hmm. it possible for them to travel between stars. What does that do to the business of being human? That's essentially the, the question that f- science fiction is always asking. And that's also what philosophers do. So I like to say that um, science fiction is actually philosophy and fancy dress. I had yeah. a wonderful tutor when I went to college. Um, I won't embarrass him by naming him, not that he is likely to hear this, but you never know, um, who used to always dress up his or or present his thought experiments as science fiction stories which I just adored Mm. so yeah there is a huge amount in common between those two do you think I was actually thinking about it earlier today do you think AI as a field is in a unique position of science fiction really prepared the society for the arrival of kind of a commercial artificial intelligence or you know artificial intelligence that makes actual tangible impact on our lives do you think this this position of People have been excited about it before it actually came into being. It's quite a unique for quite a unique one for AI as a field. Yeah, in, in some ways, yes, and, and not necessarily always in a good way. Mm-hmm. Science fiction gives us metaphors that we use and, and shorthand terms to think about uh, future technologies. So, if you say artificial intelligence to most people, um, they will probably think of the Terminator. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Hal from 2001, um, the uh, the AI in uh, Ex, Mach Ex Machina, mm -hmm. and possibly the AI in in the movie Her. Now those are the and 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 quite this, there's lots of others as well, but they're they're four of the main ones. And um, of those, um, three really turn against the humans that they're living with, and the fourth deserts them. So mm -hmm. they're mostly negative uh, metaphors, mostly negative images of AIs that we have, which is which is which is a problem, because AI is is very important in our life today but it is nothing like as important as it's going to be. And it would be a better thing if we had some positive, not role models, but positive metaphors for AI. Um, the most positive ones that most people know about are, are Star Trek, which mm -hmm. is a complete fudge um, because there's this kind of the data, the, the character data in Star Trek um, who desperately wants to be human, which is a silly trope. Um, and, and, He's kind of stops. He's he's not continuing to develop. Whereas in in fact, an AI will almost certainly carry on developing at an exponential rate. And uh, and and also the humans remain unaugmented centuries into the future, which is crazy. So we're flying spam around in in these gigantic machines, which is just not not how it will be. And then the other um, stories that people know that contain AI a lot is is. Ian M. Banks's magnificent culture series, and I'm delighted to hear that Amazon is going to make one of those into a into a movie or a TV show. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, but again, there's a massive cheat there because these mines, which <coughs> run ships uh, or run little uh, weapons, think millions of times faster than humans, and yet they hang around with humans. I mean, they couldn't do that even if they wanted to, and why would they want to? So he cheats horribly as well. Mm -hmm. There's very few people who who treat AI um, sensibly in a positive way. Uh, Greg Egan does it quite often uh, in very interesting ways, and everybody should go away and read some of him. You missed out Matrix. Was it on purpose? That's, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, uh, not on purpose. No, I just forgot it. You, mm, you're right. Okay. That's, that's the other the other really really yeah. well known one. And again, seriously negative, although possibly a bit positive towards the end. But then, I mean, if you think about it, if you take any film, for some reason, maybe because I watched it recently, my mind jumped to the Marvel Avengers and mm -hmm. where they're in, I think, the second Avengers, they had, a, you know, the Iron Man's assistant, Jarvis. Yeah. And then he ended up turning into kind of Ultron. Yeah. So that was sort of bad. All right. So um, my next question, really, or the topic I want to talk about is uh, you are not the only person who is writing about singularity and is writing about kind of what um, the progress in artificial intelligence is going to do to employment and the way we see jobs as a provider to kind of fund our living, right? Mm -hmm. But I think you do quite a quite an amazing job in splitting the thinking about AI into the technological singularity on one side and the, uh, the economic singularity on the other. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me how the split came about and how it became so clear in your mind to explain such complex issues in this kind of binary way. Yeah, I um, I try very hard to write for a general audience that doesn't know anything about AI. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people who write about AI are either either AI researchers or they're economists, and so they have a almost academic approach, which I don't have. Um, I think actually most people keep those two things separate in their minds. I mean, the mm -hmm. the technological singularity is 
the point when we create an artificial general intelligence, so a, a broad general intelligence which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human. Obviously, everything that we have now is a narrow AI, um, so y you can have an AI which can make the perfect chess move and isn't aware that it is in a burning building and about to be destroyed. And that AGI, artificial general intelligence, will almost certainly go on quite rapidly to become a superintelligence that has amazing impacts on humanity, and that's the technological singularity. Mm -hmm. Probably, considerably before that happens, we have what I call another singularity, which is the, I, I call the economic singularity, which is the likelihood that cognitive automation will lead to technological unemployment, a loss of people not being able to do jobs for a living. And I think most people do keep those two things separately in their mind, but there's not that many people who write about both. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the people who are focused on superintelligence probably find the idea of the economic singularity a bit trivial because, you know, if you're thinking about machines becoming smarter than humans, humans becoming the second smartest species on the planet, you're probably thinking about uploading, you're probably thinking about the possibility of humans combining with machines and traveling the universe. That's a really big picture stuff. And the, you know, thinking about technological unemployment might seem a bit trivial. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you think a lot about technological unemployment, um, you might think that superintelligence is you know, kind of far distant stuff, the stuff of science fiction and, and um, a little bit fantastical, whereas I like to think about both. But I do think that the economic singularity is the most important for us to address at the moment because it's more urgent. Superintelligence is an existential threat to humanity. If we get it wrong, it may well wipe us out. It also offers us um, enormous potential but the potential of becoming godlike in a Greek god sense, not a, an Abrahamic monotheistic god sense, but mm -hmm. it offers us incredible potential. But it's quite some way off, and we are actually addressing it. There's, there's quite a few smart people around the world working on the problem of how to make sure that the first superintelligence really, really likes humans and uh, understands us better than we do, which is, which is the, big, the biggest task humanity faces this century, and, and quite possibly the biggest challenge humanity will ever face. But m much more urgent than that because it's coming sooner and because very few people are thinking about it, I think, seriously enough, is the possibility of technological unemployment. And the reason why people don't think about it seriously enough is it's um, relatively near term, uh, one generation, maybe two generations away. Mm -hmm. And if you, take it, if you take the proposition that most people or a very large majority of minority of people will become unemployable, if you take that possibility seriously, it has massive implications for society, which are pretty scary. And so the result is that people tend to shy away from the conclusion and think, well, hmm, we will find somehow ways to keep everybody in jobs. And I don't think we will. But also, I don't think we should. I think the mm -hmm. idea that everybody has to stay in jobs is pessimistic. A world in which machines could do most of the jobs, certainly all the boring jobs, is, is a good world because it's a world in which humans could get on with the important bus business mm -hmm. of life and the fun business of life, which is playing and exploring and learning. Mm -hmm. It raises massive challenges like um, can we be certain, can we be confident that everybody will find meaning in their lives without jobs? I'm confident we can. More, more significantly, how do we make sure everybody has a good enough income or good enough access to all the goods and services that we need? 
And I think the answer to that is that you can only have a post-employment world if you also have an economy of abundance in which most, almost all the goods and services that you need for a very, very good standard of life are nearly free. Not completely free, but nearly free. Mm -hmm. um, now, that is a huge change from where we are now. I think it's probably where we're going, whether we like it or not. But what worries me is that the transition will be very bumpy because you know there's going to be massive disruption. All the professional drivers are going to lose their jobs sometime in the next 15 years. There's going to be no people working in call centers or very few. There's mm -hmm. not going to be very many people working in warehouses, factories, uh, law firms will probably thin out and so on and so on. So there's lots of disruption. And the idea of this economy of, of abundance is so strange and so alien to people that people aren't going to believe it's, it's going to happen. And so they'll panic. And mm -hmm. when people panic, one of the things that they do is that they vote for the most appalling people. <laughs> and we really must avoid that. So what worries me and what I spend most of my time thinking about is um, how to get leaders, political and business leaders, to take seriously the possibility that in, say, 30 years' time, we will have a majority of people unemployable. They will still be working. They'll still be all doing all sorts of projects and, and interesting stuff, but they just won't be being paid m money for it because almost anything that a human can do for money can, will be able to be done cheaper, better, and faster by a robot, by a machine. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, get, get these leaders to think about how we prepare ourselves for that transition because uh, mm -hmm. the transition will be bumpy. The thing that's missing really in the debate, apart from not enough people taking that possibility seriously, I mean, I should say, I don't know for a fact that's going to happen, obviously. It, nobody can forecast the future. No, I don't have a crystal ball. But it seems to me the most likely outcome and also it's sufficiently plausible, we really ought to be thinking about how to handle it in case it happens. So the thing that's missing is A, not enough people taking that possibility seriously, but also there's, there's a dim the missing dimension of time. When you say to people, do you think machines will take all of our jobs or will new jobs come along to replace them? They think about a particular point in time in the future, and it's typically quite near, five years, ten years in the future. Now, in that time frame, machines are very unlikely to take all of our jobs. They won't be good enough. But if you think a longer-term time frame, and particularly if you take, take seriously the idea of the exponential improvement in the power of computers, if you think 30 years ahead, it's pretty inconceivable that it won't happen by then. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's three numbers which I'm always um, very, very drawn to. Assuming Moore's law continues, and it, it almost certainly will, in the, in the underlying sense that machines get twice as powerful every 18 months, forget about whether that's through the improvement of CPUs or GPUs yeah. or TPUs or memristors or neuromorphic chips or quantum computing, forget about the substrate. Machines will continue to get more powerful every 18 months. Also, it might become two years, it might go to a year, who knows. So you have this exponential growth. At that rate of growth, in 10 years' time, the machines we have will be 128 times more powerful than they are today. That's a lot more powerful. But in 20 years' time, they'll be 8,000 times more powerful. Mm -hmm. And in 30 years' time, they will be a million times more powerful. Now, whatever 
conceptual leaps we need to make beyond machine learning and deep learning. Uh, we undoubtedly need to reintegrate symbolic AI with machine learning and deep learning. And there'll be other conceptual leaps we, we need to make. But with machines a million times powerful than they are, more powerful than they are now, which doesn't necessarily mean they'll be a million times smarter, but they will be a lot smarter. Mm -hmm. It's pretty inconceivable to me that they won't outcompete us in the workplace. Um, and and it's that missing dimension of time that, be, that that bedevils this debate and means that people don't get the conclusion. And I'm always trying to um, to shake people out of their comfortable rut, saying, "Well, you know, we've always had automation, and it's always created lots of new jobs, so that's what will happen again." It could very well be different this time. Yeah, this is actually one one of the first follow-up questions I was going to ask. How is this different to? the kind of previous agriculture industrial revolution but i think you've covered that with just the rate of exponential growth well it is worth mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt but it is it is worth going on to that because you, you raise a good question it is different because past rounds of automation have been have mostly been mechanization uh, and and you're quite right the, the agricultural industry is the poster child for this so in 1800 80% of all Americans who were employed worked on farms. In 1900, that number was down to 40%, and now it's down to around 1%. And those humans who are, who are no longer working on farms are now working in shops and warehouses and offices, and, and they're not doing manual work anymore because the machines mechanized their manual um, effort. What they're doing is cognitive work, even you know, if driving a truck, operating in a call center, working in a shop. The machines now are different because they're coming for our cognitive work. And some people think, well, there'll be another level that humans go on to, maybe our empathy, our human skills. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's true. Maybe we will all invent lots of new jobs that machines can't do because they don't have empathy. I highly doubt it. And there's lots of arguments that you can go into about that. But it's different because past rounds of automation were mechanization what we've now got is cognitive automation mm -hmm. but i guess one one of your big ideas is kind of that if we are faced with a question whether we should or not then we're in a position to kind of f forge a future of you know no jobs if you wish to do so right so that if we have an option of not working then kind of it's our job to figure out that people can still be happy and there are procedures and structures in place to kind of enable that yes um I suppose I am somewhat deterministic. I think that technology drives society rather than the other way around. And I think we're going to a workless society whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. um, just as you know, capitalism is so attractive that it's driving out other forms of economic organization around the world. China, most notably, has not eliminated but drastically reduced the amount of poverty in its country. And spectacularly raise the living standards of, of yeah. a vast number of people by adopting, capi uh, by adopting capitalism. Um, similarly, automation, because it's very cost-effective, it will be very hard to resist. And some countries may choose to try to resist it, and those countries will become very, very poor, and everybody who can will leave, and their governments will have to become horribly dictatorial, and they'll collapse. And then they'll have to adapt, adopt automation like everybody mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we have much choice. Um, I do think we, in some ways, get to choose our future. But I think the main way we get to choose it is by determining 
whether the, the the economy of abundance, where goods and services are almost cheap, is possible, determining whether that's possible, and then, and then assuming that it is, and I think it is, <clears throat> then persuading everybody that that's where we're going. So when all the truck drivers are being laid off, we tell them you're going to get a generous unemployment benefit. We're going to work really hard to try and find you another mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. But we have to accept that some of you are never going to work again because jobs are leaking out of the economy. And it will be slow at first. It'll be really slow for the first 10 or 15 years. It'll be really slow because automation does raise wealth. And it does create new jobs. So new jobs will be found for a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people. But then eventually the machines will get so good at almost all the things we do in our jobs that there really won't be jobs. And it'll ha that bit will, I think, happen quite suddenly. So I think it'll be very slow mm -hmm. and we'll be able to fool ourselves that it's not happening. And then it'll be really quick. And at that point, we need to know that the economy of abundance is possible and that that's where we're going. And we need to be able to reassure everybody. So I think we're probably going in this direction. I think it's probably inevitable. But I think we need to make sure that it can end up in a good place, that we decide to go to that good place, and that we work out a way to reassure ourselves that we're going to that good place before the panic happens. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to pick up on that and reconcile these. One of the issues I care about kind of on a, on a macro level is um, global income opportunities and information inequality, right? Within countries and among countries. So that um, if we think about the economic abundance, right, and the possibility of UBI and, and things of that nature, can it end up being local? So, for example, you know, the West obviously developing at, at a different rate, even though we, the West has slowed down quite a bit. But there are countries where the standard of living still, although we have done an amazing job in reducing poverty on a global level, there is no question about that. But the standard of living in some of those countries is still extremely, extremely low. Yet, um, kind of in the West, we talk about the economic abundance and how so soon we're gonna we're not gonna have to work. How do you reconcile those those, those two? Uh, can it end up being that the West is in economic abundance uh, and doesn't have to work, and then the countries that are catching up are still struggling? Uh, short answer: No. Mm -hmm. Longer answer: Everybody should read. Uh, everybody should watch Hans Rosling's TED talks. Mm -hmm. uh, Hans Rosling was a Swedish statistician who died recently, and um, was on a mission to explain to people how much better the world has become in the last 200 years, uh, thanks to capitalism and technology. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, it used to be the case that there was a very small number of people in the world who were rich and everybody else was dirt poor. Uh, now, um, there's a smallish number, maybe a billion of us who are pretty rich. Um, there's an, most of us are kind of globally middle class and way above poverty lines, you know, living good, comfortable middle class lives, working hard, struggling, but still, uh, compared with any human previously in history, yeah, pretty well off. And then there's maybe a billion left who are in genuine poverty, which is a huge change. So uh, despite what Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Saunders would have us believe, um, the world has got a lot better thanks to capitalism. Um, the process of improvement is going to accelerate like everything mm -hmm. else. And I think that uh, if we do head to this economy of abundance, the automated post jobs world, it will spread around the world very fast. And the analogy is the smartphone, where, um, you know, 10 years ago, phones were still, you know, pretty dumb, stupid things. And, and uh, then the iPhone was invented. 
and now they are all over the world. That's happened in 10 years, and they have completely changed people's lives. If you go to a train station, you won't really see anybody who's not looking at their smartphone, and that's true all over the world. Um, now, a lot of people in, in the least developed countries have feature phones rather than smartphones, but they're starting to use them for smartphone-type things like banking and uh, mm -hmm. weather forecasting to, to know when to plant their crops and so on. And I think automation, which will be such a powerful and cost-effective technology, will spread around the world fast because even in countries where wage rates are low, it will pretty quickly become cheaper to hire a uh, to, to to buy a machine than to hire a human. Mm -hmm. And the benefits of this uh, this is this economy of abundance will flow to the whole world. Alongside uh, the AI driving this, there's also the improvement in energy generation. Uh, there's a, a revolution going on in electricity generation, storage, and transmission. Uh, and these are kind of the two things you need to have this economy of abundance. So, no, I'm I'm optimistic that the benefits will flow around the world pretty quickly. So, do you think that for underdeveloped and developing countries, really the key is to use their leapfrogging potential, sort of similar to what uh, Africa's done with the internet and then with the smartphones, with banking. So they leapfrog over some of the stages of development and then they kind of catch up at an exponential rate. Do you think this is going to be key for those countries to catch up? Yeah, it does seem that countries can go through the the phases quicker than their predecessors. So China seems to have gone through the industrialization and then and, and, and the pollution that's uh, that goes along with that, but then clearing up that pollution seems to be going through that much faster than Britain did, uh, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that that will be true in other in other ways and in in relation to auto to automation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Last question, Colm. If you had to give an advice to a current graduate, right, whether it's from school or from university, who either has chosen or hasn't quite chosen the career path that they want to undertake, right? How should they be thinking about uh, their future in terms of career development. Does the information revolution or kind of AI revolution, whatever you want to call it, change the thought process and the strategy behind uh, the future of professions and the future of careers? Yeah. Um, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, mm -hmm. the order in which professions will be automated. Um, yeah. So I think it's a bit of a mugs game to try to guess that. And I think people should not worry too much about whether they're choosing a future-proof career or not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're never going to be able to not worry about it, but don't stress about it too much. Um, I have a 17-year-old son, so this is a very live issue for me. Mm -hmm. If you are somebody who loves the English language and really enjoys studying it, then you should do that. If you're somebody who loves maths and you're really good at that, you should do that. If you Similarly for biology or physics or philosophy or whatever you should you should follow your inclinations i think because every form of intellectual activity is going to be useful mm -hmm. um, some people say everybody should study stem subjects because the future is all about computers and therefore you have to know about computers well i think everybody should try and understand how ai works and if you can get involved in it as a career then you know it's clearly going to be a growth area so that can't be a bad thing but it doesn't mean that um creative work will disappear obviously it won't and that you know there's other people who think well machines will take over all the hard science work all the maths work and what will be left for humans is the things that are least like machines which is humanity subjects mm -hmm. i think they're all important um so i think we should all study a bit of humanities to work out how people work 
We should all study a bit of social sciences to work out how societies and economies work, and we should all study a bit of hard sciences to understand how the physical world works. They're all, they're all important. And of course, you know, in, in the generation of people who are leaving school or university now, the economic singularity is probably going to happen in your generation. So you probably won't get to the end of what would normally be considered your career mm -hmm. because the machines will probably have taken the jobs you would have done by the time you get to my advanced age. Um, and so what you will then need is the intellectual skills to really enjoy a life of leisure. And that's that whole broad range. So I think now follow your inclinations. And if you can get into AI, that's going to be a great area to be in. But don't worry if you're not, because whatever you go into will be interesting and useful. Uh, and be as broad and be as curious and open to learning new stuff as possible throughout your life, because mm -hmm. you're going to need that. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, amazing advice. Thank you very much, Callum. And uh, pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for this thought-provoking conversation. Uh, do you have any specific place where you want to direct the listeners? Anything you want to raise awareness about? Anything, anywhere where people can find you best? Well, if your audience is mostly students, which I suspect they might be, then um, I, I'd heartily recommend them to get their libraries to make sure that they buy a copy of Artificial mm -hmm. Intelligence and the Two Singularities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cool. And what's, what's the order of... Uh, reading because I, I read surviving AI quite a while ago and then I got the economic singularity and read that and then I found out that you have kind of a book that summarizes the two um, what order it's a bit like Marvel films what order should people read your books and uh, is it enough to read one to kind of get the grasp and which one is it yeah if you if you get the chance the, the latest one mm -hmm. has everything in it it's it's encyclopedic it's encyclopedic it's from an academic publisher so it's not cheap um, uh, but if you get the chance to read that one, that's that's the one to go for. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Um, thanks very much, Callum, and uh, good luck for the day, and keep in touch. Thanks, Max. Good luck to you. Thank bye you. Bye. Ciao. Thank you very much, guys, for tuning in for this episode of Max Talks AI. I really hope that you had a great half an hour or so. I really find some of the things that Callum says, especially, again, about the impact of AI on economics, absolutely original and super, super impactful, really. If you want to check out more of what Callum is up to, uh, firstly, I would suggest buying his book, The Two Singularities, that covers uh, two of his first nonfiction books, Surviving AI and The Economic Singularity. Please check out Callum Chase on LinkedIn um, and also follow him on Twitter if you'd like. He posts quite a bit of uh, very interesting stuff and posts very often, so I quite enjoy following him. His Twitter handle is ccallum. So that's triple C-A-L-U-M. Also, a good place to check out his work would be uh, callumchase.wordpress.com. And as always, if you want to see what I'm up to, if you want to see how I'm growing the podcast and what developments uh, I have ongoing as of this moment, I am active on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And it's uh, whatever the platform slash maxtalksai and maxtalksai.com to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again and hope you're having a smashing week.